0: Hello everybody, this is Leslie Jane Seymour and I am the founder of Covey Club and of Reinvent Yourself, this podcast. And I am so excited to bring to you someone today who I got to know really well, she sort of came into my orbit through Cubby, And then she came to our Savannah retreat, that was the first time we really met. And she is just like a sprite who dropped into my life. To guide what Covey Club should be, really, because she lives that Covey Club life, the constant learner, the going toward new things, the keeping an open mind, the moving toward the new and the different and the exploring. And she's hilariously funny. She's extremely warm and just pushes the boundaries of everything I know. and. At Covey, at the Savannah Retreat, everybody loved the wonderful Meg Jordan, which is why I asked her to be on this podcast. She has doctorates. She is a teacher. She is an explorer. She is a journalist. She is an RN. She's, I can't even go through all the things that she is. You will hear her speak about them. She has children. And she also had, she said, five husbands <laughs> because none of them can keep up with her so it's not surprising but wow what a person what a lifestyle she has explored everything from goddesses to cardiac care to whatever it was that interested her at the time she just sort of went with it and i love her opening uh discussion where she says you look at the way that the fates dangle tiny golden threads and you grab them, and this is very similar to what I've heard from other reinventors who say that you have to keep your eyes open for every moment that a reinvention possibility throws itself in your path, but I like the tiny golden threads much better, and I think a lot of us need to open our eyes to those tiny golden threads, and when you meet Meg Jordan, you will see what all those threads were and how she grabbed them and how she thought that originally there was no direction or plot or plan. And she says that when you look back, however, she sees that there was a direction there and there was a map going in one direction. So let's welcome the wonderful Meg Jordan. How are you, Meg? I'm so glad to finally get you on my show here. I am so happy to talk to you. I always am. It's always, it just reinvigorates my life. Oh, good. Well, I feel the same way. And because everybody was so blown away by you when they met you at Savannah. And it's sweet to hear. You're just so inspirational. I wanted to, to get you to talk about your reinvention journey, your many reinvention journeys, and how you approach them for this crowd because we are all trying to figure out what's next for us and how to navigate that. And sometimes we think it's just one thing and actually it's many different series of things. And I think that's what you do best.
1: Thank you, Leslie. And thank you to the whole team that you put together when we all met at that gorgeous resort. And it was so inspirational, you know, just listening to each other and to find out ways that we, people navigate their lives, the similar challenges we have sometimes as women. It was, yes. it was absolutely great. I look forward to more. And I think that, you know, as you look at this topic of reinvention, there's probably, I met people there that were so organized about how they've reinvented their lives and they've done it with this kind of overarching plan and they have a, a, a formidable left brain that plots out those steps. And I listened to that thinking, my gosh, I have reinvented, myself, but in haphazard ways. <laughs> haphazard ways in which one of my early teachers, I did a documentary on her. She used to say, you know what you've got a knack for, Meg. You just look at the way the fates dangle these golden threads, tiny golden threads in your path. And what's different about you is you grab them, you grab them, because the fates won't dangle those for long. They dangle them and say, let's see if we can get this little human being curious about this this glittery thread over here. And if they don't, then well, we pull it back up again. And they are they are doomed then to a life of complacency and 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 perhaps never pushing themselves into the challenge of the next step. So I, I heard that as I was doing a documentary on her, and I had to kind of reflect on that. Have I been just grabbing whatever little golden thread dangles in front of me by the fates? and and in, in a sense, I have, I haven't had a master plan. But when you, like Steve Jobs said, when you look back and you have this opportunity for reflection and you see where did the dots connect, then lo and behold, wow, there was a pattern that actually made some kind of sense. And you can get very very spiritual about those patterns and think, you know, were they predestined? Did my actual little soul come into life with some kind of karmic story that it was going to tackle these things? I don't know. I'll never know those big answers, but I like playing in the unknown.
0: <laughs> How about you? What a great starting point. So let's talk about those <laughs> threads. That is what somebody said to me in all, you know, More Magazine was all about um, reinvention. And there were many, many people I interviewed there about it. And one of them, very much like what you said, but you said it in a much more elegant way. Um, one person said is that you have to have your eyes open and be able to see all the reinvention opportunities that throw themselves in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I do believe it's mindset, correct?
1: Mm-hmm. I do. I do. And a mindset that actually, oh, just like Harold Dweck talks about a mindset that says there's no such thing as failure, really. There's, whoops, I didn't do that right. Or, hey, I need another chance. Or let me try this again. And everything is a learning opportunity and that flexibility that we bring to it. And, and the beauty of having parents that never said, you are particularly talented and should go far. No, they said, are you kidding? Put your butt on the piano bench and try it again. They, they All they saw was practice and hard work was the road to success. Now, I think there's a downside to that. I think it can turn you into a workaholic. Hello, Leslie. Hello, Leslie. But I also think that at the same time, it allows you the freedom to think like there was this little... Sentence written across my soul when I was born that said, "Oh, if I try hard enough, what the heck? Who's going to stop me?"
0: I love that about you. That is that is definitely the feeling we get from being with you. So, since people don't know you, mm-hmm. let's start. Let's just have in brief, um, sort of where you grew up, what you start to do, what you learn to do, and your various reinventions. And okay. then I'll dig into the various ones with you, but. Let's start that way because people don't know who you are and they need to.
1: Well, oh my goodness. Let's see. This is a nice um, nice rehearsal for what I have to go through tonight. My larger community where I live wants me to have a, it's my turn to have biography night where you stand there and you actually talk about your life. So it was uh, early years, was born in Chicago on the South Side by Irish and Italian parents. I was the fifth pregnancy, but there were only two survivors before me. And um, my parents were, you know, kind of subjected to the white fright of the area, and they left that south side of Chicago, and they found refuge in the white suburbs of western, um, western suburbs of Chicago, and I grew up in Elmhurst, and had kind of this idyllic little childhood of sledding in the street, and lots of big collie dogs, and gangs of kids, (laughs) and so it was I thought I had a lot of freedom because my parents were older and tired and therefore the back door was open and I was out playing all day, all night, lots of creativity. And then off to protesting, Vietnam War in the early years at University of Illinois running the bail fund for the Chicago Seven, being arrested in lots of protests. Um, suddenly getting a message of whatever I was raised with in the suburbs, I needed to kind of put aside and to really understand that there was a diversity to life that I was not aware of in the least. And threw myself into going to school and being a waitress at the, the Black Panther pub, you know, and, and getting the hard knocks early in life of, here's what I have to wake up to. Here's the reality of life in the US. Here's how a lot of people do not live with privilege. And and what does it mean to understand that? So. I would say my social activism heart grew. And then um, it was college years, also filled with LSD and, and motorcycles and trips. <laughs> and then I uh, got out with my degree in journalism and made a big mistake on a story. I was working for a chain of newspapers, um, and it was a health story. And I was humiliated and embarrassed. And I talked to my doctor and nurse friends that I knew when I was covering stories in the ERs. And they said, just go back and get your MD. And I looked at the number of years, and I went, no, I'm not going to do it, but I'll go get the RN. And I did get the first year nurse practitioner was being offered as well. So with that kind of ICU and CCU and cardiac rehab years, I was still doing journalism at the same time and writing for Today Show and CNN and uh, lots of different kind of national magazines at that time. And then there were babies and moved to LA. And in LA, um, in the 80s, it was the kind of birth of the fitness movement there. And I just landed at the right place, right time. Knowing cardiac rehab and also being a journalist, I started um, a trade journal for the budding aerobics profession. It was called American Fitness. And I had lots of great mentors in that time who talked about. You're covering a cultural phenomenon now. Write about it in a big way. Do not do this in a small way. Look at, look at even the, the morally righteous kind of attitude that emerges when somebody adopts a fitness attitude and lords it over others. So I still had my kind of social activist heart as I even applied these stories in the fitness industry. Um, kind of got known and was called into William Morris and was often writing scripts and health and TV shows and infomercials and everything for celebrities who had what they call a sagging cue rating that means their their appeal and and money and royalties was starting to decline and therefore they needed a boost so they brought in this health writer and expert who ran American Fitness magazine and was still working as an RN running cardiac rehab by then I had two babies and I was on my second marriage And then uh, I was writing scripts for Richard Simmons, Cher, Angela Lansbury, Jacqueline Smith, Heather Locklear, you name it, whatever. William Morris, celebrity, needed a health and fitness message. I was the words behind that. And after a while, I just fell and crashed. Because... Other than Richard Simmons and Kathy Smith and a few others, and even Cher, I was, I was propping up kind of a lot of phony people who were saying, you too can look like me and sound like me and have my body in this shape and these lips and these breasts if you just follow my program, if you just follow my fitness routine, if you just watch this infomercial and buy this product. And so the heavily commercially laden buy this, do this be like me, sound like me, message crushed my soul. And I actually retreated, walked out of a meeting. I was writing for Art Uline at the time on the Today Show. And he said to me, you know, I want a story that women should return to their rightful OBGYN and forget all this nonsense from Boston Women's Health Collective and women's health centers and get a midwife instead of an OB, enough of this. Let's return to your rightful OB, meaning male OB, G-Y-N. And I walked out of that meeting, and I walked into a bookstore in Santa Monica. And I pulled every book off the shelf that I could about this new goddess movement that was emerging in the mid-90s. And in one of the books, it was called Once and Future Goddess by Eleanor Gayden. I called her up, and I said, I want to do a story on this. And she said, Don't just do a story. Come up here to San Francisco and study with me. I am starting a master's in women's studies with an emphasis in women's spirituality. Wow. Life took a turn. This was one of those golden threads that I talked about dangling in front of you that I grabbed and moved on with. So moved there. I did a PBS documentary called Gathering the Goddesses and interviewed all of the HarperCollins authors at the time, from Jean Shinoda Boland to Susanna Budapest, about their work that was waking women up to a sacred feminine core. And these were women who were raised in what I called the, the monoculture desert patriarchal cults. <laughs> I'm offending everybody who comes from an Abrahamic tradition right now. I realize that. But this was an upheaval. This was, you know, a, a cultural phenomenon of women looking at, uh, for the first time, images of goddesses from India to the South Pacific, saying, Whoa, what is this? I have never seen a version of a sacred feminine before. Man has always been in charge, whether it's the principal, the mayor, the policeman, or the priest. So the documentary aired seven times on PBS, and I got some award. But I wasn't a documentary filmmaker. I was a newsroom chunky. And I did other stories on the dog sled and I did a rod and well, trains returning. Um, I think there were other turns, but how are you doing? Are you still
0: listening to me? <laughs> I am here. It's so good. I'm just listening. So keep going. So what happened after the after the PBS? And yeah, the goddess kept, check. Right, yes. the and goddess was, thing. I, I, I didn't realize that you were so involved in the goddess movement. That's incredible. Yeah, I was very much so, yeah. So the master's
1: was attained and then I went back into my usual work, uh, which was both nursing and journalism. They always existed side by side. There's a part of me that wanted to be the absolute bedside practitioner, uh, providing health and healing and motivation for people to get well. And then there was the other side of me that was the creative, verbal, expressive person that, that needed to tell large stories. And they are both in me to this day. And I think you have to honor honor those instinctive competencies within yourself and look at how do they feed your soul? How do they help connect you to the larger picture in life? I did lots of travel with Vicki Noble to Egypt and to Ireland, to pre-Celtic civilizations, to Malta. Um, I worked with interviewed Jean Houston, and and we looked at Sekhmet and the various Egyptian goddesses that helped her attach her life to a larger mythic story. And these women fed me, and also allowed me to have the three skills that Desi and Ryan talk about that allow you to really reinvent yourself. And those three are so fundamental. I know I'm supposed to save tips to the end, but it's laced throughout here. So let me talk about competency, autonomy, and connection. The competency means, I want to go after this, but I don't have the skills to do it yet. To get the skills to do it yet, I'm going to have to do my homework. I'm going to have to take this course, wherever it is, this workshop, sign up, be humble, be a white belt, go after it. Competency. The second is autonomy, which people often confuse for independence. Autonomy doesn't mean that. It means, am I able to make the life decisions that actually steer my life? Or are the decisions that steer my life being made by someone else, by a spouse, by too many children, by a dominant culture? How am I making the decisions that actually steer my life? That's autonomy. And the third one is connection. What is my connection to this? Do I have the resources, the people? What is my community? Do I have a bunch of naysayers around me or people who believe in me? who are my best friends and how do they support my dreams and how do I support theirs? What is, how vibrant is the connection I make? And Leslie bless you. Covey club to me embodies these three things so much helps us learn from each other, helps us empower each other with our own decision-making and provides the connection. So it, I mean, the hair is raising on my arms right now as i talk
0: to you and your Nola home. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you've got the whole feeling. I mean, that's what's so amazing is when I find people like you who totally understand what we're trying to do and, and where we're trying to go with this. And you, but But to spell it out like that from an academic point of view is just wonderful and crazy at the same time. Oh, good. So would you say that, because when I listen to you talk about how you look at your life like that, would you say that you were just somebody who always said yes, Were you just open, you know, this whole yes movement of just say yes to everything and see where it takes you kind of thing? Is that the open doorness? Because so many people would say the way you described everything you did here is like, oh my God, I would have been too afraid to say that, or I would have been too afraid to say yes, or I would have worried about this or worried about that. What made you always say yes and move forward?
1: Yes, Exactly. Oh, that's such a great question, and I think it is the gumption I had as a little kid. I can close my eyes, and it can go back to being seven years old, where Uncle Jim came out from West Hartford, Connecticut. He was president of diesel, Cummins diesel, and he shows up in his navy blue Fleetwood Cadillac, and he listens to me to play Clair de Lune on the piano, and he says, you got what it takes, kid. You have to have, at some point in your life, the gaze from the older adult that looks at you and says, you got what it takes. And I think that just, that little ember grew into a roaring blaze for me my whole life. And that allowed me to say, hmm, right now I've done as much as I can with the goddess movement, but I see that there is a, there's a way that women are swallowing pills that have only been tested on men and I'm sick and tired of doing stories for Fox on women's health that don't even make it to the finish line. I'm going after a PhD in medical anthropology. I'm going to study health and healing systems around the world, shamanism, qigong, herbalism in China. I went to Kerala and looked at Ayurveda. And I had to I had to kind of go after the next thing. So the yearning in your soul, the pebble in your shoe, you have to have the competence or the confidence rather to go after it, whether or not you're really quite ready. And that's gumption. That's grit. That's believing that even if you fail, it doesn't matter. You're going to learn something on the way, right? So there were vision quests in Nepal, in the Chiricao mountains. But I have to tell you, there's a cost to all this. There's a cost. I've been married five times. Neville, Angston, Kelly, Savatsky, Wilcox. Ridiculous, right? One of them, eh, the marriage license didn't make it to City Hall. And another one was kind of a green card marriage. But there are still those five marriages and there's a cost to that of my saying, is there nobody in life that I can really pair with because they can't put up with me and my wandering soul.
0: Hmm. So do you
1: have kids? Did you? Yeah. Yeah, I got two kids with the second marriage and he's my one lasting buddy through all this and he's remarried and my kids are
0: um, 36 and 40. And are they wandering souls like you are? (laughs)
1: <laughs> now, my son, he got his degree in economics in Berkeley, and he went in Peace Corps, and he came back and said, I'm going to be an RN. So he's an emergency room man, RN in Kaiser, and he's married, and he's got a darling one-year-old baby, Valentina. I adore her, and another baby on the way, and his wife from Guadalajara. She is just a sweet soul. We adore V&A. And then my daughter is single and 40 in Denver, and uh, whew, she's sold her soul to the corporation. And um, we have talks every other day on the phone. What does it mean? What does it mean to make sure, yes, you are the, the best possible corporate gal. They all depend on you. They rely on you for everything. And how, how are you self-editing your own dreams right now?
0: That wow, was- what a mom. Incredible. <laughs> I love that.
1: Oh, honey, it's now- tough. You've been through it.
0: Tell tell me what, what do women do who don't have that parent who said, honey, you've got what it takes? Because an mm-hmm. awful lot of people didn't come out of their childhood that way, and they're still struggling. We're doing some deep dives on reinvention with um, women at a thing called Camp Reinvention and these two coaches I'm working with. And um, when you sit around the table and we all – sort of, you know, take off our masks and our pretend outfits of who we think we are. We're all basically 10 years old, struggling with the things that happened to us then and things that didn't go right and all that kind of stuff. And some of us do better than others at getting over that. Mm -hmm. But what do you do if you don't have that confidence?
1: Yeah. What do you do? But now I'm a graduate school professor, and I'm sitting with 40 graduate students, 20 of which are trying to get their thesis and dissertations done. And some of them are rock bottom on confidence, and they feel like they've put 40,000, 60,000 into an education, and they can't get one word on paper. And I do, you know what I do? I, I, I sit with them. I sit with them and I go, yeah, this is awful, isn't it? What a shame. You have to just extend empathy first. You have to kind of be in that deep listening with them, in that empathetic resonance. And then somehow a lifeline is thrown to them, and their little soul awakens to the fact that maybe I'm not going to do it well, maybe I'm not going to do it right, but I'm going to get going with it. Cheryl Stray had even talked about that with her first novel, It was an interesting piece, I think, in the New Yorker, I can't remember, but it it was all about, I have put this off for four years, five years, now I finally have a chance to write it. And she had to say to herself, I'm not going to write it perfectly. I'm just going to write this damn thing. And November novel is a chance for people to do that when it comes to writing. You got to put out 50,000 words by the end of November and you do not edit them as you go. Some of the sentences are pure garbage but you learn to silence the critical, critical mind. And that's what I do with my grad students when they're having when they're in the throes of saying, I can't pull this off. You sit with them with empathy and you say, write a bad sentence right now. <laughs> you practice, practice being wrong, because we have such a heavy duty inner critic with us. And from there, you start to laugh about whatever you've put forward and you do start to refine it. You always try to shape it for a better a better output. And I think that the next step after that deep-seated empathy with another human being is, um, you know, facing the loneliness of, of taking your next step, maybe by yourself. But, wow, just as I'm studying community now as the source of a cure for everything, I am so focused on that. I, see, I think we have done with this rugged individualism in America. It is time to set it aside, just like it's time to set aside the feeling that one president can be a domestic god or goddess and to be a foreign relations specialist at the same time. You know, we need an overhaul on everything, all of our institutions. And it's time to look at the, social benefits of well-being that come from community so yeah
0: I, that's what i mean obviously that's what covey club is all about is trying to create community because as we study it we find that there are so many benefits that come from it and we have less and less yes we yeah. don't have a town square we don't have religion we don't have we barely you know now you can learn you can go to university and never show up at a classroom mm-hmm. i know I so if you can go to the Store and not even talk to the checkout girl anymore. So, or that's guy, you know,
1: right? that's right. You go to your little scanning line. That's right. And the more the more purchases I do online, I think about that all the time. I think about how I rail against the the closing of retail in my little community here with plywood windows. And I think I'm part of it. What did I just buy? How did I just make Jeff Bessel's richer today? So it's like it's right. endless. Yeah. So, so, how
0: do we, so how do we as women, and first of all, I want to ask you, where did you get your love of learning from? Because I would say that all these um, Covey Club people, one of the things that I discovered early on that was holding everybody together is this sort of lifelong learner. There are just some people who are just naturally curious, mm-hmm. and they maintain that curiosity all the way through all their ages. It doesn't go away. But where did yours come from?
1: Hmm, I think there was a value placed on learning in the home. Older brothers and sisters went off to college. I looked at that. I knew that's where I was headed. My dad was kind of cool and aloof, but he was a lawyer. And I was a, definitely an Athena, wanting to be my, a, a proud daughter of my father. My mom played bridge, socialized, and was in the hospital auxiliary, and was a good housewife. And I made a choice at that point. My house is going to be dirty, but I'm going to know a lot.
0: (laughs) I like that. Awesome. Because I think that, do you think that learning and adventurousness go together? Because I think there's some connection there between the two. I don't know that you would be adventurous if you were not interested in learning more.
1: I do. And yet I also know the fives on the Enneagram who are intellectual and scholarly, but they're hoarders with their knowledge. And there's not—that's a shadow side. There's not the same adventure and sharing. They think there's only so much knowledge to go along, and I need to gather it right here and hold on to it. So that adventurous spirit—I'm a big student of the Enneagram and the way—the mm, way our inborn preferences and tastes kind of unfold in life, the boxes that we struggle in, the ways that we try to get out. Enneagram is a very elegant system for understanding that there's other people who are extremely adventurous in their quest for learning, but at the same moment, their shadow is that they drop it like a hot potato, as soon as there's a glittery pebble on another shore. And so they only go half-baked in that acquisition of knowledge.
0: Talk a little bit about aging because I think Meg, you have a spirit that I mean, I, I would, I would, I would hesitate to say that you feel to me like you're, you know, twenty years old with your excitement about um, mm-hmm. learning and the way you look at life and you're up for the next thing. What is your experience with aging?
1: <laughs> oh man. well, well, I'm, I'm subject to the same. Society, society woes. When I stand in front of the bathroom mirror in the morning, and I'm going, "Oh, what is this thing sagging at my neck?" <laughs> so sometimes that's my view of aging. Other times it's uh, it's a denial. I don't want to celebrate my birthday. I can't stand hearing this next number. I'm not that great with it. I write stories for you on what supplements are going to keep us as healthy as possible. I take collagen. I'm now on an AMPK activator. Is really having energy levels.
0: What is that? What's AMPK? I
1: don't oh, I know. I knew it. you'd ask about that. I knew you. <laughs> Listen, I gave you enough of a supplement article before. I thought I've got everybody swallowing NR and NMM. <laughs> oh, it's just another one of these signaling molecule improvements in, in helping at a deep cellular level, um, putting the brakes on
0: aging. All right, I'll pull up all your stories into the show notes so so that everybody can find them all. I can find that one. Yeah. So, so basically you think that you're you're a denier? I think a lot of I think a lot of covey people are just deniers too. I think we just say, you know, until I feel it, I'm just gonna live my life as as if I was thirty-eight or whatever number it is that you think you were when oh, you Leslie, last looked, you know?
1: I think so too. Now Leslie... As you look out through your eyes out into the world, you, there is a, there's an age that you've stopped at, whether it's 28, 38, 52. I, I have this little theory about people. My sister has always been 82. 82. No matter if <laughs> she's 10 or 20. She's That's 82. hilarious. 82. When I look
0: out through my eyes, I'm 38. That's my number. <gasps> That's my number. That's why we're pals. I, that's, I've always said 38, and I don't know what that means. That was my second child when I had my second child. Yeah. But I don't think of myself as any older than that, even <laughs> though even it. though the body's changed, even though everything looks different, and even though, mm-hmm. um, of course, I know so much more. But that's so funny that you picked 38. What was going on at 38 for you?
1: Hmm. I had, both kids were done. I had kids by the time I was 30 and then 33, and then 38, ah yeah, yeah, 38 was a big liberation, it was a a divorce, um, my, the father of my kids, and then I was running for Today Show, and I was doing stories on executives who were with the rank and file, and they were in ropes courses in the woods, and they were climbing pamper poles with the, the CEO and the mailroom clerk, and there was this leveling effect, and and I was just on a high, and I remember having a little voice appear in me saying, I want to be a voice of health and healing on the planet. And from there, Global Medicine Hunter was born. I did a series that got optioned by Discovery, 13-point series. It got sold to Global TV up in Canada. I moved there and was um, Dr. Meg Jordan, Healthy Living Morning Correspondent on Global National for five years. I think it... I think there was a big push to realize some dreams that I was afraid of expressing in life. And all of a sudden there was the force from the universe that said, do it now, do it now. 38 is the ripeness of life. Yeah. Do it now. Yeah. Yeah,
0: And that, and they say, you know, when you dig into this my old history of being in the fashion and beauty business for so long, you know, those people who get locked into hairdos. Yes. That was their, that was their moment. The the, the hairdo goes back to the moment when they felt like that. Isn't that amazing? Do you still have your 38 hairdo? No, not at all. (laughs) But when you look at at people like Anna Wintour, who hasn't changed her hairdo since she was like 20, you have to ask yourself what's going on there. She has that bob that she had for her entire life. I know it. I
1: know it. That's why I look at Jane Fondas and I go, look at this silver wig she had on in the Oscars. Right. And is that an update?
0: What is I, that? Yeah, <laughs> they all look the same to me at a certain point, <laughs> but I think, but I, but I think that is when you, where your thinking comes from in the age that you're at. So in closings, we we're at, we're actually at our end here. Um, were there any other tips and tricks you gave us some great ones right there? And I guess also, find a guy who can keep up with you is probably the most important tip coming from you.
1: (laughs) It's it's impossible, but find a dog, find an animal, live with an animal. (laughs) Honestly, I've had Colia William. And right now I live with, get this, my new rescue puppy, Mr. Darcy.
0: Oh, that's so funny. Cause I have a piece that we ran from a woman who did rescue dogs in avalanches. She would travel the world, looking that was her business with her husband and she discovered she loved the dog more than she loved her husband
1: <laughs> well this dog he is a wild child but i'm trying to turn him into the british well-mannered gentleman the most romantic hero of jane austen's novels mr darcy and it's great to we'll see if he lives up to it
0: <laughs> great well meg thank you so much for your time thank you. And I'm so glad that you've been a part of my world and you bring so much to it. And I hope, where can anybody find the things that you're working on today? Is there any particular place to look?
1: Oh God, Leslie, I just adore you. Thank you for this opportunity to talk so deeply with you about things that matter and where can they look? Um, Yeah, I've got a website, megjordan.com. It's not my academic one, but it's where I can post some livelier stuff that's easy. And, um, I don't have anything emerging now. I need some help getting my book done, Adventures of a Global Medicine Hunter. It's been delayed for too many years now.
0: All right. So we we won't make you any more delayed. And we will post your pieces in the show notes. And thank you so much. And I can't wait to see you again soon.
1: Thank you, my dear. It's wonderful talking with you.
0: So thank you everybody for being on the, for listening to reinvent yourself, and yes you could be on the podcast also. Some of you have sent me some great interview ideas. Please do that, Leslie L E S L E Y at CoveyClub.com. dot com. I love to hear your ideas and thank you so much for listening and if you like us please subscribe and also if you know other people who need some reinvention help please pass this podcast to them we are the only ones really digging into reinvention in a deep way i also hope you'll come and check out covey club and coveyclub.com and our covey club app which is called covey club connect And We are really trying to create a community of women who are lifelong learners, explorers, reinventors, and who've decided that it ain't over till we say it's over. And I hope that you realize and you can obviously see that Meg Jordan is saying, it ain't over, baby. So until next time, have fun. Take care. Enjoy reinventing.